Genesis 2, 10 through 17. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, though we still struggle with our blindness, grant us eyes to see even more in your word. Though we still struggle with hearing, grant us ears to hear more deeply of the eternal love you have for us in Jesus. Though we still struggle against the flesh, the world, and the devil, grant us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead in the gift of the Holy Spirit to fill us and to guide us in the paths of righteousness, leading us to do that not from a legal motivation, since Jesus already took care of that for us, but from a natural motivation born of your love and you being alive in us by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Early to bed, early to rise with a question mark. Can we trust these wise old sayings? Last week we talked about our identity. That you don't have to go find yourself and you dare not construct your own identity. You do this as a process of talking with God's people, talking with the people you trust from the body of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, through God's holy word. And it's a discovery process, not a construction process that goes against everything society is saying today. We don't have the right to do that. You're going to die someday. How in the world can you know what your identity is unless God tells you? He knows all. This week, since, since we are image bearers of God made to reflect him in his glory, then the question is, what do I do now that I know this? That's also fixed by God, too. And I don't mean right now the narrow kind of like, what's my career going to be? Who am I going to marry? That kind of that flows out of this in terms of wisdom that the Bible promises that he, he will give liberally to any who ask him for it. So can we trust those old sayings? Is it really true early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise? You've heard it before, right? It's from... Seven, the 1735 edition of Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. 
But it goes back earlier than that to a 14th century article on the sport of angling, or what we would call today fishing. And anyone who fishes knows that getting an early start is of utmost importance. As this saying evolved through the ages, it got tied to holiness and happiness in the minds of a lot of people. Can you imagine that? I mean, like the general culture was actually thinking that way. Who would those days come back, Lord? In my own heart, too. You know, this has a biblical origin. Look at your scripture sheets. Proverbs 20, 13. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. Same basic idea. And what the biblical proverbs and these ancient sayings, what they're trying to do is to put you in the best possible place for success. However, biblical proverbs are not promises. And wise old sayings are not sacred. Rather, they are the result of looking closely at God's world and noticing some general patterns that display the skills necessary for successful living in that world. So it's not a guarantee that if you go to bed early and you rise early, that nothing bad will ever happen to you. It's just saying the probability is more in these areas. So if you're outside of those areas, you probably, doesn't mean that even if you live outside that you can't have success. It's just less chances of it. Because we don't know everything. We don't know what, you know, as James says, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. But we need more than these sayings and proverbs. We need to see a model of this. And we need to see that model in the one who made us because we are his image bearers. We need to see his glory. So how does he work? Because that's what we talk about when we talk about what do we do about this. Talking about work. If you look at your scripture sheets, a quote there from that formulaic sentence that comes at the end of every 24-hour day of creation. And there was evening and there was morning, the first, the second, and so on, day. Notice that this sentence puts the evening at the beginning, emphasizing the end of the workday. The idea here is is that you're coming into rest, that even though God set aside one day in seven, at the end of each day, there is sort of a mini Sabbath in which you enjoy what God has done. It's sort of like, and there was light. Now look at this light. Take it in. And so our purpose is to mimic God in his work rest cycle in terms of a pattern. Of course, we can't do what he does, creating just by the mere words of his mouth. Our work, it puts his excellency on display through us as his image bearers. And then rest, we get to enjoy that glory on display, taking in the results. It's like a show. That's why our Presbyterian forebears were wise when they gave us on your sheets there, the ever-famous question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, what is the chief end of man? What is man's chief purpose? 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But the fall messed that up and it's made us self-focused and self-consumed with our own glory. And self-obsession is not reality. We live in his world, which he made for us. It's a gift. So what gets us back to that reality? We not only need to see that model of glory, of work and rest, we need grace because of the fall. It's messed up everything. We're wise in our own eyes. We think we know everything. We think we know enough to plot our lives out. We don't even know if we're gonna die tomorrow. It's grace, which is God's favor of rightly relating us to him through the glory of the work of his son, Jesus, and that righteous life that's given to us as a record that we don't deserve and his taking on himself our sin and taking on God's eternal wrath, which we deserve. So the central point here is God created you to, and I forgot to put the two in there. God created you to glorify him in which you will find true enjoyment. So how do I fulfill my purpose? Well, you fulfill your purpose by remembering because it's about grace. We have to change our minds about God. In our natural state, we don't like him infringing on our rights. But he is God and we are not. Thus the creator-creature distinction that he's impressing upon Adam. If you will glorify me, you will find true enjoyment. This passage tells us that. Believe it or not, even in those first 14 verses about the river. So you fulfill your purpose by remembering God made his world so that you can be healthy, wealthy, and wise unto his glory. That's his original plan. So let's look at that first point, healthy to his glory, verses 10 through 14. And what we see here is a formula and its results. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The formula, starting in verse 10. Well, first of all, let me explain. The formula has three parts. There's a source. Here, the source is Eden. That's where the river flows from. It's a river source. There's a power, which is God's personal presence, which, of course, is that source. It's ref- Eden reflects that, that God is really the one underneath all of this. And then there's a flow, source, power, and flow. So let's look at the source. The source is Eden. Last week, we talked about this word. It means the pleasures and riches. That is, it's it's a kingly playground in a sense. And I don't mean to make it seem trivial or light, but it's a place for us to experiment on our side because we don't see, you know, God works mysteriously, but it's a place for us to experiment on our side of things To see what does it mean to be created in in the image of God when he puts the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. And, And so Eden itself, Eden reflects God himself. Riches and pleasure. Not the way the world thinks of these things, but truly in conformity to how we are made when we work in legitimate, godly ways 
and aim to see God's glory. We're meant to enjoy that. And that's reflected. This scene of verses 10 through 14 is picked up in the, in the kind of motif of the temple, the tabernacle and the temple throughout Scripture. There's an echo chamber in Scripture. Remember, Jesus himself was the fulfillment of the temple. In John 2, destroy this temple and what? In three days, I will raise it up. And John himself said he was talking about the temple of his body. In other words, everything that the temple is, Jesus is and more. Because what was the temple? The temple was God's presence living in the neighborhood with his people back there in the Holy of Holies. If you would have asked a Jew, where does God live? They would point to the Holy of Holies. I'm talking about the Jew back in those days. God lives over there. Now, were they saying that God only is there? No. There's two kinds of relationships. God is everywhere present, but this is his special covenant, loving presence with his people. That's what was there back there in the Ark of the Covenant that no man could enter except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so, reflected in the temple, we see this throughout the Bible, and I want to move fast forward to Israel toward the end of the Old Testament timeline where basically Judah, and I don't want to get into all the details, basically God's people were sent out in exile to Babylon because of their stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious ways. Stiff-necked, think about that. I ain't looking at God, I'm going to do my own thing. And God called them a stiff-necked people a lot. So don't throw too many rocks at them. We're a lot like them, okay? But what, what's going on here is Ezekiel is sent, like God did with many prophets, to assure the people that this judgment is a temporary judgment. It's not an ultimate judgment. It's a fatherly displeasure judgment. Kind of like getting sent the time out or getting spanked. And God told his people, don't stay in Israel. Don't try to protect the temple. If you, if you are my people, you go with them to Babylon. Now you think about that. You're settled in your home. Now you've got to go to this foreign country where they don't speak the same language. Imagine how disorienting that would be. And so that's sort of the background Behind this, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had come in. He had taken the golden vessels out of the temple that Solomon had placed there right at the beginning. So you think about that. The temple, that's the source of their identity. In fact, probably they thought too much of themselves. You know, we're the the people because, hey, Yahweh is living with us, right? And that pride led them into further sin. But their, their identity is being ripped apart. And then you see the power, the source, and then the power of God's presence. Even though it seemed like Nebuchadnezzar was more powerful than them, God not only told them to go to Babylon, in Jeremiah 29, 7, another prophet, he told them to seek the welfare of the city and to pray to him for it. See, we got to get our minds right about God, because I'll tell you, that would be kind of embittering, wouldn't it? At least initially, my flesh would want to rise up and go, pray 
Pray for the betterment of these people after what they did to your temple, Lord? God was sort of saying, you know, you kind of did the same thing in a different manner. I want you to get your mind right. But this vision is for their encouragement that God is telling the people in Babylon, I'm still your God and you're still my people. So let's look at Ezekiel 47, verses one and two. I want to prep you in two things. There are a lot of details here. Don't get caught up in the details. Focus on the water. I want you to focus on the water because that's what ties it to this passage, the river. And then also there's a, a man that is, in, it's a vision. This is not what's really happening, but it's a vision to communicate something. It's a metaphor, a symbol, so that the people would understand that God is with them and for them. There's a man that's leading Ezekiel through this vision of the temple. So let's read. Then he brought me to the back door, or to, back to the door of the temple, and behind, and behold, excuse me, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. So it's the idea. Here's the temple, right? I'm going to do it this way. No, this way would be better. Okay. This is the Holy of Holies back here. Ezekiel's inside the temple. The man is showing him. He's seen the water bubbling up over here. He takes him out the north gate. Since this is facing east, the north gate goes around the outer side, comes back. He's outside the temple looking in at the door of the temple. And he sees the water trickling on the south end towards this way. Okay? So that is telling us about the flow from that source in the power of God's presence. The flow of that river, because that's what a river does, right? And look at our passage in Genesis 10. I mean, Genesis 2.10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. It's like the multiplication principle that God is, like he told Adam and Eve in, in Genesis 1.28, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth. Because no one single person, no one single thing can capture that glory. Even amongst similar things, there are differences that multifaceted glory of God is manifest and none of it can capture it. So there's always more and more and more. Look at uh, Ezekiel 47.3-5. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, which is about 750 feet. And then he led me through the water and it was ankle deep. So we're going from trickle to ankle. And again, he measured a thousand and he led me through the water and it was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand. And he led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through. For the water had risen and it was deep enough to swim in. A river could not, that could not be passed through. He says it twice. It's flowing and becoming stronger. And what are the results? If you look at our passage, verses 11 through 14, you see the name of the first is Pishon. And it's the one that flows around. Notice the expansive language. The whole land of Havilah where there is gold. It's kind of a bookend. The life of Eden 
results in gold. It's a picture of the health and the wealth that God designed in the process that he designed. I'm not talking like those preachers on TV, give me some money and God will give you a car or give you more money. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God's wisdom. And that's not overnight. So there's gold, but he knows that he says the gold is good. Again, reflecting the pleasures that Eden is. And then not only gold, but again, it expands. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. And then the next one, the name of the second river is the Gion, is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. Now, this is a descending kind of level of detail, but it's similar. It includes some parts, a little bit different with the Tigris, but basically what it's saying is that everything that was in the beginning is running through all this. I'm just giving you a shorthand version of it. Which reminds me of what John says in John 1:4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Life coming from the source in the power of the presence, making that flow happen, resulting in much more. Let's look at Ezekiel again, Ezekiel 47, 7 through 9. As I went back, I saw the, on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and the other. Now all of a sudden, trees are growing. And he said to me, the water flows around, the, the east flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah and enters the sea. The Arabah, think Arab, think arid, think desert. This is desert land. Like the water, the dry ground here in Eden. Remember up in chapter two, verse five, it was dry because God had not yet caused it to rain. God is bringing life where life really isn't. And it enters the sea. And look at what happens in the middle of verse eight there. When the water flows into the sea, the water become, will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. The sea that it's talking about here in this part of the land that he's mentioning is the Dead Sea. It's the Dead Sea because it's so salinated, so much salt, nothing can live in it. You can use it for salt. And the fishermen need salt because that's how you preserve fish. You rub salt in it when you don't have refrigerators or freezers. And it goes, it goes on, for the water goes there and that the waters of the sea may become fresh so everything will live where the river goes. Think of the swarms uh, like Genesis 1, 20 and 21 when God created the waters. He said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Do you see the echo chamber here? God is developing this, adding more and more. So what do we have here? We have a powerful river bringing life where dead things are. Does that sound familiar? Look at Ephesians 2. But God being rich, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, our sins, in other words. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
See, God originally designed us for prosperity, both spiritually and physically. Look at if he, uh, Ezekiel 47 again, verses 10 and 11. Fishermen, now we got people for the first time here, besides the ones watching it. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Enaglium. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. It will, it, its fish will be of, again, very many kinds because one fish couldn't hold all the glory of God. Like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are left for salt. So everything is there for the fishermen to prosper. Health is the, is what the life of God brings, which makes us able to work, which leads to prosperity and blessings. Look at Ezekiel 47, 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there, there will grow all kinds of trees, not just many trees, but all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water that for them flows from the sanctuary. That means the holy place, the holy of holies, sourced in God himself. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Their fruit will be for food, and their, look at this, their leaves will be for healing. The river which started with a trickle in Ezekiel 47.2 flows powerfully, bringing healing. A trickle into a river that no one can cross with trees growing up brings healing. Does this sound familiar? Think of Jesus with the woman at the well in John chapter four. Look at it on your scripture sheets. John 4.10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living water. You see how all these things point to Jesus? The water that brings life and healing. Look at verse 13 of John 4. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, meaning the water from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him, see if you see a pattern here, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. One sip of Jesus' living water. Life. One sip, never thirst again. One sip of the living water becomes in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life, healing, health. Notice that those are the same root word. Heals in both of them. So you have a, a river flowing from Eden, which is God's goodness and riches and pleasures, in this royal playground for you to develop. The river brings health. It makes things grow. It brings life where dead things are. Dead in your trespasses and sins spiritually. 
which is what God is primarily doing now, even though physically it sometimes works out. But we're living in the present evil age and things break down in ways that we cannot control both outside and inside of us. But at least on the spiritual sense, we know this holds true. And that will issue forth because really, if you look at Revelation, the last chapters there, you'll see a very similar passage as Ezekiel 47, only even more developed. But we won't go there today. If this river brings health to man because it flows from the sanctuary, Ezekiel 47, 12. It flows from the sanctuary of the Eden. Life, health, work, prosperity, mimicking God in his work and rest cycle, both internally, spiritually, and in the inner man, which is the primary focus, but that should issue forth in your focus on your Christian life, on your own work, and anything else you engage in. We're meant to be healers, but in the most definite kind of way, not, not in the way the world would be satisfied with. The world won't be satisfied until they bend the knee. But just you keep flowing, okay? You keep flowing. God created you to glorify him in which you will find true enjoyment. And you fulfill this purpose by changing our minds, fighting to keep in our minds that God made his world as a gift so that you can be healthy ultimately. Not that we won't be plagued with health problems this side of heaven. And having health, you can work and rest and enjoy mimicking God in his world with the result of you being healthy and later wealthy and wise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you come to us as your people. We don't deserve it. You come to us with the gift of Jesus. You gave up the very best, the very best man who ever lived, the one who is God himself. We don't understand how all this works, Father, but we do know that it took an eternal person in, in human form to live the life we couldn't live, to bring his life, as he told the woman at the well, that the spirit, that's what that water is, your spirit living in us. We have the third person of the Trinity. Infinity lives inside a finite man. And out of us, out of me, out of our folks here, out of wherever your people are throughout the world, throughout history, rivers of eternal life flow out of. We pray, Father, that you would help us to unstop those places where, those, where we've stopped up that flow and help us to be flowing evermore. Maybe it's just a trickle to start then it's ankle and waist. And finally, a river that no one could cross because it's so full of your life, bringing life where dead things are. Would you use us in that way, guiding us by your word? In Jesus' name, amen.
Please turn to hymn number 535, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. <laughs> 